Uh, we are going to continue today with our study in the parables of Jesus. Um, and we are going to study a very familiar parable that probably everybody in here knows. And that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And that is found, if you got your Bibles, and I would urge you to follow along. Uh, we're going to walk through it this morning. And um, it's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Now, you know, I, I really, be honest with you, I wasn't looking forward to this one because I thought I knew it. And probably some of you are thinking, oh, I already, you know, I already know what he's going to say. But I found out very quickly that I did not understand this parable near as well as I thought I did. And so I think you'll probably, hopefully, learn a few things um, this morning. Now, it is probably, of all the parables we've talked before, there's probably somewhere between 45 and 50 parables. The number is disagree. You know, some people say, uh, for example, the, the parable of Lazarus and the rich man isn't a parable because it, it actually uses people's names. So there's disagreement on what's a parable or what's not a parable. But roughly there's between 45 and 50 parables. This is probably by far the most famous parable. In fact, it's so well known that it's actually become part of our culture, isn't it? Uh, you can pick up a newspaper article and you'll see where somebody pulled over to help somebody and they'll call them a what? A good Samaritan. And everybody knows what... You don't even have to be a Christian to know what that means. Everybody knows what that means. That's a, when, when a stranger pulls over or goes out of their way to help someone in need, they are called a good Samaritan. So it is a very, very famous parable, like I said, that's really become part of our culture. But it is probably the most misunderstood parable um, as well. On the surface, seems like a very simple story about kindness, about mercy, about compassion, but we're going to see that it is anything uh, but that. And like all parables, and this is a really good time to point this out, all parables at their foundation are about salvation. Keep that in mind. Jesus, listen, does Jesus want us to be moral, ethical people? Absolutely. But I'm going to tell you, first and foremost, he wants, He's concerned about the salvation of your soul. Remember, we already talked about that with the parable of the unclean spirit. You can be a moral person, but if you ain't got Jesus, you're probably worse off than an immoral person. So first and foremost, when Jesus is, is teaching, He's concerned about salvation. So all parables at their heart, at their foundation, are about salvation. And we have to keep that in mind or we will oversimplify parables um, sometime. Now, with today's parable, all parables, and, and we've seen this, context is critical, right? We've said it, I, I said this over and over. If you just, in fact, I told Kathy yesterday, this week, I just happened to read an article, and a man who does abortions, do, an abortion doctor, says he's a born-again Christian. And someone asked him, well, how is a born-again Christian, can you justify from Scripture killing babies? And he said, well, I take the parable of the Good Samaritan. And he says, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, you've got a man who empathizes with the pain of a stranger. He says, I empathize with pain of these women. So he actually took that, out of, he took that story out and he made it fit what he wanted it to fit. See, that's the danger of taking things out of context. You can make them mean anything you want to. So it's, context is always important. It's probably more important than normal with the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you just take the parable out and read it, you'll completely misunderstand what Jesus is trying to teach. And so it's very critical that we understand context of this parable. So it all begins 
uh, with a lawyer asking Jesus a question. So we'll start in verse 25. And the Bible says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So more than likely, Jesus is in a setting where he's teaching a lot of people, or multiple people, right? And they're probably sitting down because it says the lawyer did what? He stood up. They're not walking alone. Jesus is probably in a situation like this, and some, somebody stands up, a lawyer stands up, and asks Jesus a question. Now, lawyers, uh, they're also known, depending on what translation you're using, they might be, it might be called a scribe. These were guys who, whose job it was to study the law, uh, transcribe the law or make copies of it, and they would also write commentaries on it, or they would be called to give a decision. If two people had a dispute and they about what does the law say about this, they would go to a lawyer. That's the whole. This is where this all comes from. And the lawyer would look at the Old Testament law and it'd say, "Oh well, it says this," and so they would sometimes write decisions and things like like that. So they were very religious men who basically whose jobs they spent their life studying the law, studying the Old Testament commandments, the Old Testament regulations. So they knew exactly what it said. Everybody with me? So why is he asking Jesus the question? See, he already knows the answer. Um, And in fact, Luke tells us his motive is not good. It says a lawyer stood up to what? Put him to the test. See, he's not interested in truth. He's not interested in gaining wisdom that will help him be a a better lawyer. He's not interested in any of that. He's trying to put Jesus to the test. He wants Jesus to say something that he can catch Jesus in something that's against the law or something like that. He wants to to trap him into saying something that they can use to condemn him because they want to kill him. So his motives are, he's not interested in the answer. Everybody with me? That's his motives. He wants to put Jesus to... To the test. And, it's, and so we ask him a question. He says this, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now there's nothing wrong with the question, by the way. In fact, there's not a more important question than any of us could ever ask. And can I tell you, he's asking the right question of the right person, isn't he? If he really wants an answer, he's a, he, he has got the person in front of him that he needs to ask. Now, we've all probably watched enough television shows and we've heard this said from time to time, that a good lawyer never asks a question he doesn't know the answer to, right? We've, heard, we've seen Law and Order and <coughs> excuse me, shows like this. And by the way, this lawyer's no different. He, he knows the answer to this. As we said, that's his job, is to know the law. And, and so the answer is so obvious, especially during that time, because these are all Jews, They're all, they all know the law, they're taught that from a, as a child. And so Jesus turns around and he hands it right back to the lawyer. And look at verse 26. <coughs> Excuse me. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? In other words, you're a lawyer. You, sh- you should know the answer to this. Now, I want you to notice what Jesus has done. You see, when the lawyer asked the first question, Jesus was the defendant. Jesus is in the dock. Jesus is being put to the test. But with one, Jesus completely turns it around. Now, who's, in the, who's the defendant? It's the lawyer. See, Jesus is now the one doing the question. It's the defendant who his righteousness is about to be put on, on trial right here. So Jesus just completely flips the script on him right here. So the man goes ahead and answers Jesus' question. Look at verse 27. And the lawyer answered and said, this is the answer, what do I do to inherit eternal life? 
And the lawyer says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two things. Now, this lawyer, by the way, and I mentioned this a second ago, he knows the answer, not because he learned it at law school. He didn't have to go to some kind of law school to learn this answer. These are words that Jewish children are taught from, from their mother's knee. Because this is at the very heart of what it means to be a Jew. This is at the very heart of the Torah. It's the very heart of Judaism. Everybody sitting in that room or wherever they were knew the answer to this, to this question, right? And, and these come from two scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 says this, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And Leviticus 19, 18 says this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So even in the Old Testament, they knew that all the law boiled down to those two things. All the other rules, all the other regulations was either telling you how to relate to God or how to relate to your neighbor. Everybody with me? But it all, and, and by the way, didn't Jesus later on confirm that in the New Testament? He said, yeah, the whole law is, is, is wrapped up in those two scriptures. So everybody knew that back then. That wasn't, that wasn't anything, that wasn't anything new. So what Jesus says is this is what the Old Testament law requires of us to achieve eternal life. And that is perfect love to God and perfect love to your neighbor. In other words, you have to love God with everything you are. And you have to love your neighbor in the exact same way that you love yourself. That's what the law teaches us. Now, as I mentioned, all the Jews knew this. The lawyer, he's an expert in the law. He knows this. And he's going to give the right answer, which he does. Look at verse 28. And Jesus said to him, you have answered what? Correctly. Do those two things and you will live. Now, don't miss what Jesus is saying. If you do those two things, if you love God with all your heart, all your strength, all your soul, all your might, and you love your neighbor the same way you love yourself, you will live. What was the lawyer's question? What do I, have, what do I need to do to have eternal life? Jesus says, you do those two things and you will have eternal life, okay? Now, a lot of people stop right here and say, well, now, wait a minute, where's the gospel? Why didn't Jesus say, uh, you need to repent and come follow me? Anybody wonder about those kind of things? I do. Where's the gospel? Why didn't he give him the gospel? I want to show you another story. Very, very similar thing happens where we all, we all know this. There's a story in Matthew 19 where uh, a a rich young ruler comes to Jesus. Remember that story? And he says, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? In other words, same question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, and he goes on, he says, do this, Do he goes through some of the commandments, and then Jesus says, if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. In other words, obey the law, right? Keep the Old Testament law. And watch what that young ruler said to him. All those things I have kept from my youth, what am I missing? You see, that young man was at a place in his life, he had kept the law as as best as he could from from a young age. But But here he is, and he knows he's missing something. Everybody with me? He said, what am I missing? There's something missing. I know I am. Now Jesus goes on and says to him, remember what Jesus said? One thing you're missing, sell everything you got. And come, what? Follow me. And did the man do it? 
No, he was too rich. He couldn't give up everything he had. But what I want you to understand is this man and the rich young ruler and the lawyer are in two different places. You see, the lawyer knows he's, he's closer to repentance, if you want to say it that way, than the lawyer is. The, the, young, the rich young ruler knows there's something missing. He said, it's, it's not, it can't be about all about that because I know I'm missing something. And Jesus says, you're right, come follow me. But you see, what we have to understand is in both of those cases, now listen, this is critical to understanding this parable. Jesus is doing personal evangelism. He's not sitting up on a rock teaching 5,000 people. He's talking to who? One man. There's one man asked this question, and Jesus is answering that one man. You see, he's doing personal evangelism. And what you have to understand in today's situation with this lawyer is he's, he's got to change how the lawyer sees himself. See, the rich young ruler understood, man, I'm missing something. This lawyer, he don't see that at all. You see, Jesus understands that lawyer doesn't even know he's sick. And if you don't know you're sick, you'll never go to the doctor, right? The, the lawyer doesn't even understand he's lost. He doesn't understand something's missing. He thinks he's fine. So for Jesus to say, come follow me, that he's got to make the man realize first and foremost what state he's in. Does that make, does that make sense to everybody? So let's come back to the passage real quickly. Now, at this point, the lawyer's ulterior motives for asking the question have been exposed, have they not? By the way, he asked Jesus a question. Jesus says, well, what do you think? And he turns around and he answers the question, right? He knew the answer. So all the people, remember, there are other people there. They're, they're looking at the lawyer saying, well, you knew the answer to that question. Why did you ask it? They, they understood very quickly he had something else in mind. So his, his motives have been exposed Again, he wasn't looking for an answer because he already knew it. And the lawyer sees that he's been exposed. He needs to cover up his hypocrisy. So in order to do that, he asks a second question. But look at what verse 29. But he, talking about the lawyer, desiring to justify himself. See, he wants, he's, he realized I've been exposed. They can see I'm a hypocrite for answering that question because I already knew the answer. So he wants to make himself look innocent. That's what that means. He's attempting to justify himself in front of this crowd. He says to Jesus, okay, but who is my neighbor? In other words, what he's saying to Jesus, it's not that simple, Jesus. Life is complicated, right? You can't just say, love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? What, what kind of people am I supposed to love? In other words, don't miss the question he's asking, who qualifies to be called my neighbor? Is it every race? Is it every... Religion? Is it every age? Is it every nationality? Is it only men? Is it men and women? Everybody see what he's trying to do? Who qualifies to be called my neighbor? Who qualifies for my, for my love? Now I can tell you guys, Jesus does not like this question. Because what it's doing is it's attempting to put people in groups. You're worthy of being called a neighbor. You're not worthy of being called a neighbor. You're worthy of being loved. You're not worthy of being loved. Jesus does not like that at all. Because it's trying to qualify people to be called a neighbor. So Jesus does not answer the question. Now this is where most people, most of us, get messed up. See, we would say, well, this, this parable is about who is my neighbor. It's not what this parable is about at all. See, Jesus does not answer that question. 
He won't answer that question because that's the wrong question to ask. Instead, he tells a parable that changes the question. See, he's going to tell a parable. This man is self-righteous. This man thinks he's okay. He's trying to justify himself. And Jesus is going to tell a parable that's going to crush that man's self-righteousness. He's going to tell a parable that, so that that man sees who he really is before God. And by the way, not just him, but every person that comes along, this parable is designed to convict. That, that's, this parable is designed to convict us of who we really are before, before God. So let's read the parable, then we'll come back and walk through it. Verses 30 through 37. Jesus replied, remember, what's the question? Who's my neighbor? Jesus replies, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side as well. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to an inn, and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, this is a lawyer, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise, or you go and do the same. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Jesus is talking to a man who thinks he's okay. What are you going to do when you talk to someone and you want to give them the message of the gospel, yet they are self-righteous? They think, I don't need it. See, they're convinced, they're, I'm religious, right? I, I go to church. I was baptized when I was 12 years old. Um, I love God. I, I know all about Jesus. I can, I can tell you about the parable of the Good Samaritan, right? I, I do good works. Um, I'm a moral person. See, how do you approach that person? How do you convince that person that they're a sinner who needs, needs a Savior? How do you break through to that, to that person. How am I going to get this person to realize or recognize their sinful situation? How do I, as we said earlier, how do I make them see their sickness so they know they need to go to the doctor? How do I make them see that they're lost so that they know they need to be, to be found? How do I do that? You see, guys, that's always where evangelism starts. If you're going to evangelize somebody... That's where it starts. When, when, when we walk somebody down the Romans road of salvation, where do we start? Anybody? Romans 3.23 says what? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, people have to understand they're a sinner to see their need for a Savior, or it won't mean anything. Jesus said in Luke 5, 31-32, uh, Jesus said, those who are well don't need a physician. Only those who are sick. I have not come to call righteous people, but sinners to repentance. See, if you, if you think you're okay, you'll ne- you don't see your need for Jesus. See, that's where evangelism, especially personal evangelism, has to start. People have to see 
their need for a Savior before they'll, they'll listen to the gospel message. Now, Jesus is doing it for this lawyer by telling him a parable. So here's what I want you to understand. The purpose of this parable is to make this man see his true condition before God. This is what Jesus is doing. He wants this man to realize he's sinful so that he can see his need for a Savior. Okay, That's the whole purpose of this parable. It's not about being kind. We'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit because some, some of us for years have thought, well, this is all about just being compassionate. And I'll show you what happens. Now, we're going to walk through this parable little by little, and I'm going to show you exactly what Jesus is doing. Let's start in verse 30. So the man says, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus replies, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, and beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. I don't know if y'all can see that picture, but that's actually a picture of the Jericho Road. That's actually a picture of the road that goes from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, by the way, Jericho is north of Jerusalem. But yet the Bible says you go down. Okay, The reason of that is because of the change in elevation. Okay, Even today... It's still, it's, it's pretty much, you know, the road's been rebuilt and it's a little bit different route. But in that day, according to the uh, Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, we know that road was about 18 miles long and it dropped from an elevation of 2,500 feet in Jerusalem, which is up on a mountain or up on a big hill, all the way down to Jericho, which, by the way, is 850 feet below sea level. I mean, you think Florida is low. Jer- Jericho is seriously low. So you drop almost a half a mile in elevation over an 18-mile distance. So when, we talk, when the Bible talks about it, they say people go down to Jericho because that's exactly what you're doing, even though Jericho is to the north. Now, in the time of Jesus, this was a very, very dangerous road. It was, it had, because you're going down so steep, it was very windy. There were a lot of places for robbers to hide. It was notorious for its difficulty. Uh, notorious for its danger. In fact, it was known as the way of blood in that day. Okay, for, for various reasons, which you can, you can imagine. It was known as the way of blood. That's how dangerous that road was. So as Jesus begins to tell this story, this would be a very believable story to the lawyer. This wouldn't be something that Jesus is pulling out of left field. This lawyer would understand, oh yeah, man, that's a, that's a dangerous road. That, that kind of stuff happens um, every day. And so Jesus begins to tell this story, and I'm sure he captures not only the lawyer's interest as he begins to tell it, but he also captures probably the interest of the crowd who is, uh, who is listening. Now, I want you to understand something very quickly. Have you ever noticed that you're not told anything at all about the man who is beaten? He's completely generic. Is he a Jew? Is he a Gentile? Is he a Samaritan who, by the way, was a half-breed? Was a, was a, uh, Samaritans were uh, Jews who had, who had bred, who had uh, um, intermarried with, uh, with Gentiles. Was he any of those things? We don't know. Because, by the way, it has nothing to do with the story. The man that got beat, it has not, he's just generic. Okay? He's got nothing to do with this story at all. He's not the focus of the story. He's not the point of the story. And you're going to see that in just a minute. Okay? So Jesus continues. 
So this man's going down, he gets beat, and it comes along. Jesus says, now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now, as soon as the lawyer heard the word priest, I'm sure in his mind he thinks, okay, well this is, this is probably going to turn out good. After all, a priest is somebody like the lawyer. He's somebody who knows what the Old Testament taught. And by the way, Deuteronomy 10, 19, Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. The Old Testament said, you need to love that guy. You love the people you don't know. You love the strangers, the travelers, the sojourners. You love them because you were strangers when you were in Egypt. So I'm sure the lawyer, as soon as he hears priest, he's thinking, well, the priest is going to help him. After all, a priest knows the law. He knows what he's supposed to do. If anybody is going to obey God's word, it's going to be the priest. After all, he's, he's God's representative, right? He, he's religious. He knows the law. He fasts. He prays. He tithes. He's closer to God than, than any other, anybody else in Israel. So if anybody's going to help, it's got to be, got to be the priest. But of course, we all know what? He doesn't help at all. And Jesus says, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I look this up in the Greek, and there's very, there's something that, that word there that says he passed by on the other side is a very specific word in Greek, and it's very strong language. It literally means he went as far to the other side of the road as he could possibly go. In other words, it's not the idea that he walked over and looked at him and thought about it, and then he went on. It literally means he shunned him. It literally means if that guy was over there, he went as far on that side as he could go to get by him. He, he didn't even give him a thought. He didn't even consider helping the guy. That's what, that, that's what the language there in the Greek means. You see, now, I want you to see something. In this one action, the, the self-righteousness of the priest is exposed. You see, the priest cannot claim to love God because if he loved God, then he would obey God's Word, would he not? Wouldn't he do what God asked him to do? He would stop and he would show that stranger kindness. But he doesn't do that. So in one action, he proves he doesn't love God. He's not loving his neighbor. And by the way, those two things disqualify him from what? Eternal life. Because those are the two things you have to do. And he just disqualifies himself. Jesus goes on. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, the Levites, in case I'm sure most of you know that, but they were the guys that assisted the priest in the temple. They were kind of at the, the bottom of the priestly hierarchy, but they still were very religious people. They knew what the Bible taught. They were just like the lawyers. Their, their whole life was immersed in religion and immersed in the temple. So they, they knew what all that was about. They policed the temple. They took care of the temple. They, they cleaned up. They got things ready when, when they were having things, activities and such. Um, they were serving God in the temple. But notice he does the exact same thing. And the, and the language that Jesus uses is the exact same language. He went as far to the other side of the road as he could possibly go. He shunned him. Okay? Now, we've just met a couple of people in this story who in the lawyer's eyes, and remember, who is Jesus talking to specifically? He's talking to the lawyer. So the lawyer is processing all of this, and in the lawyer's mind, those two men are just like him. See, they're, they're, they're righteous men, just like him. Yet they both failed to meet the Old Testament requirement for eternal life. Love God and love your neighbor. 
All right? Now, what you got to see here, according to the lawyer, what the lawyer perceives is the best of the best of the religious establishment could not meet the Old Testament requirement for eternal life. With one short story, Jesus has indicted the religious establishment and condemned their self-righteousness. Now comes the shocking part. And this lawyer, I'm sure, has no way as he's expecting what's about to happen. Jesus says this in verse 33, But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, what you have to understand is Jews absolutely hated Samaritans. They considered them evil and literally hated them with a, with a passion. Now, this goes all the way back, and if you want to Google this on your own, but it goes all the way back to the sons of Solomon. It, all, it goes all the way back to the kings like Jeroboam and Rehoboam and the split of the kingdom. It goes way back, a lot of hundreds of years of history here. But they absolutely hated them. And suffice it to say that if you wanted to insult somebody, as, as, if you wanted to pull something and insult somebody as bad as you could, you called them a Samaritan. You remember in John 8, 48, the Jews looked at Jesus and said, did we not rightly say you are a Samaritan and, a, and you got a demon? I mean, wow. I mean, that's like pulling out the double-barrel shotgun. Not only are you demon-possessed, Jesus, you're a Samaritan. Boom! I mean, that's as bad as they could get. I mean, when they want to put you down, they threw being a Samaritan in there. That's how bad it was. Okay? That's how much they hated them. Now, real quickly, in the Levites, I mean, in the uh, lawyer's mind, I want you to compare the two groups of people in this story. On one hand, you've got the priest and the Levites, Right? These are the righteous men. They've got access to the temple, access to the sacrifices, access to God. They can relate to God. They've got access to the law. On the other hand, you've got this Samaritan who is despised. He's outcast. He has no access to the temple. He's not allowed in there. He has no access to sacrifices. He has no access, in in their mind, no access to God. But yet the Samaritan is the one who does the right thing. Now, I want you to watch what he does, because this is important as well. Verses 34 to 37. He goes to him, and he binds up his wounds. Okay, so the first thing he does is he, he, he gets his hands dirty, doesn't he? I mean, this man is bleeding, he's cut, he, he don't know, you know, I mean, this is a mess that he's got going. The man's half dead, he can't help himself. So this man takes and he binds up his wounds. He pours on oil for salve, he pours on wine for disinfect, to disinfect the wounds. Right? And then he takes him and he puts him on his own animal. And what that means in the Greek is he had one way of transportation. He might have been riding that donkey, but he puts that man on the donkey and he walks. He puts that man ahead of himself. He brings him to an inn and he takes care of him all night. Now, how easy would it have been to drop the man off so that other people can help him and you go on your journey, right? Wouldn't that have been... And we'd have still thought he, did a, he was a good Samaritan, wouldn't we? But see, he didn't stop there. He stays all night long, tends to the man all night, and we know that because he's still there the next day. And it says the next day, he takes out two denarii, and he gives them to the innkeeper. And he says, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come back, I'll pay you. I want you to notice a couple things about this. From what we understand, from the best records we can find, two denarii would have paid for that man to stay there for two months. Can you imagine? This is all important, folks. He doesn't just say, hey, take care of him for a day or two. 
He says, look, if he's so hurt, if he needs to stay here for two months, here's two months' payment. And by the way, watch, he completely opens himself up for extortion. He says, look, if I come back and you've spent more, I'll pay you. Now let me tell you, when he comes back, that innkeeper's going to say, boy, you know what? Man, he, he, I just had to go do this and this. You owe me. But, but that guy opens himself up for that. Okay? This is all important. See, guys, what this is, is lavish love. This, this is amazing generosity. This is going the extra five miles, not the extra mile. This is the kind of generosity and love that normally people only show to one person, themselves. And that's the point. See, Jesus could have easily told a story where the man did as little as he could, but He shows a man going, doing, being so generous that what the point he's trying to get across is that man treats his stranger exactly. He does for the stranger what he would have done for himself. He's loving that man the way he would have loved himself. See, that's exactly what Jesus wants us to see. The man loved the stranger as he loved himself. He did for the stranger what he would have done for himself. This is love without limits and love without boundaries. Because guys, that's how we love ourselves. You show mercy to yourself every day. You excuse yourself every day. You go above and beyond for yourself every day. And that's what that man did for that stranger. Listen to me. And I don't mean this, I'm aiming this myself too. If you think that by giving some money to poor people that you fulfilled the principles of this parable, you are sadly mistaken. If you think by stopping to help somebody change a flat tire, that you've somehow fulfilled the principles of the Good Samaritan parable, guys, you completely miss what Jesus is saying. The idea isn't that He just stopped to help. The idea is He helped in a way, in the same way He would have done for Himself. He goes above board. He loves Him the same way He, he does for Him, the same thing He would have done for Himself. Now let me ask you, can you think of one time in your life where you've loved a stranger in the same way that you love yourself. And, and in fact, let me ask you this. Even if you can, if you happen to be one of the few people who can actually think of a situation where you've loved a complete stranger in the same way that you love yourself, let me point this out. Unless you love God and you love your neighbor like that all the time, not just once, all the time, perfectly, you are not going to inherit eternal life if you try to get in by the law. See, that's why Paul said in Romans 7.10, and the commandment, the law, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. See, Paul says, I opened the Old Testament law, and it's telling me how to get to heaven. But instead of giving me life, it brought me death. Why? Because I couldn't do it. I was incapable of doing what it's telling me to do. You see, now, watch this. Jesus says in verse 36, remember, what was the question? Who is my neighbor? Watch what Jesus said. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Everybody see the difference? See, the point is not that guy. The point is you. That guy is generic. It doesn't matter who that person is. That's not the point. See, the lawyer says, who's my neighbor? 
Is it that guy? Is it that guy? Is it that guy? Jesus said, no, which one of these proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? See, Jesus, I said before, Jesus is not going to answer that man's question, who is my neighbor? See, he completely changed the question. See, he changes the question from what kind of person is my neighbor to what kind of person am I? He changes the question from what people are qualified to be loved by me to the, am, I, am I the kind of neighbor who loves without qualifications? It's a completely different question. Then Jesus brings it all home to this lawyer. Uh, remember, he's doing personal evangelism. He wants this lawyer to see his state, his true state before God. So he brings it all home and he says this. He asked that man, which one of those proved to be a neighbor? And the man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and you do the same. You go and do the same. Now at that point, see, what Jesus is saying is you are to be a neighbor to anyone and everyone all the time. There's no qualifications out there that that person's worthy and that person's not worthy. No, you do it to anybody and everybody you meet all the time. And, when, and by the way, when you do it, you are to do it lavishly. You are to do it sacrificially. You are to do it generously. You are to do it without limits, without qualifications. You are to love them the same way you love yourself. What he's telling that lawyer, you go and do that. If you want to earn eternal life through the law, then that is what you must do. Now, at this point, if you're like me, studying this week, and if you're like the lawyer, you realize something. How is that even possible? Who loves like that? Anybody? I don't. You see, we can't do that. We fail miserably. You see, this is where the knife should go in to that lawyer. This is where conviction should, should just rest right upon his heart. Because he realizes at that point, I, I don't do that. I can't earn eternal life through the law. See, none of us, we all have to say this. We can't, we, that's impossible for us. I don't love like that. I can't love like that. I'm not sure any of us have ever loved anybody like that. Listen, even those closest to you, think about the people that you love more than anything in the world. Your spouse, your family, whoever. Trust me, let me ask, do you love them like you love yourself every second of every day? Anybody? I guarantee you, you don't. But why? Because we can't. There's this selfishness that's in us. It's this, this self, I don't know. It's just impossible. That's the point. You see, guys, that's why we're all sinners. Because we cannot keep God's law. That's why we need mercy. That's why we need forgiveness. That's why we need a Savior. I want to read this here. Romans 3, 21 to 23. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with Him without keeping the requirements of the law. Why? Because we can't. See, that was the whole point to that lawyer. You can't do the two things that God has asked you to do. Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor the same way you do yourself. You fail miserably every minute of every day. So God, there has to be another way. If I'm going to get to heaven, it's not going to be through that. It's got to be another way. Paul tells us in Romans, God has shown us another way. How to do it without having to keep those two things. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. 
And he goes on, and of course, in Romans 3, this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for we've all sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Listen, is there a lesson in the parable of the Good Samaritan about being kind? Of course. Is there a lesson in the Good, uh, in the good Samaritan about who is our neighbor and, and, and who we should show mercy? Yes, of course, there's lessons, but listen to me. This is a salvation story. The main purpose of the parable of, of the Good Samaritan is this. It is to show us that there is no way, no how, could you ever earn your way into heaven. Because the two things that God requires, you cannot do. You cannot love Him with all your heart, and you cannot love the ne- your neighbor in the same way that you love yourself. Should, do we try? Absolutely. Every day we should get out of bed trying to do those two things with the best of our ability. And I'm going to tell you, every day you're going to fail. That's why we need another way. That's why we need Jesus. And see, all I could think when I was putting this together, I just threw this up there. I just said, thank you, Jesus, for giving me another way. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me another way. Because without that, without that atoning death on the cross, I am lost. Let's pray.